0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about Italian politics. There is a new government in Rome headed up by the man that was once known as Super Mario, Mario Draghi. This is the third administration in less than three years and we're going to talk about what it means for Italy and for Europe. To help us make sense of this, I have an all-star cast. I'm very pleased to welcome Lìa Quartapelle, who is a parliamentarian from the Democratic Party in Italy, Alessandro Speziale, who is the Bloomberg Italia director, who's just written a biography of Draghi, and Arturo Varvelli, returning to the podcast, the director of ECFR's office in Rome and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. Thank you all very much for joining. I'm very keen to talk about who Draghi is and what his appointment means for Italy and for Europe. But maybe very briefly, before we get there, we can talk about how we got to this situation. At the end of last week, the former European Central Bank chief Mario Draghi was sworn in as Italy's prime minister at the head of a unity government. This ended weeks of political turmoil in Italy. And Arturo, maybe I can start with you. Can you help those listeners who don't follow Italian politics as closely as you do to understand why there was a political crisis and why Draghi was called back to save the nation?
1: Thank you, Mark. So it's a difficult task, but I will try. The political majority of the former Italian government was based on an alliance between two parties, the Five Star Movement and the Democratic Party few months ago, the former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi left the Democratic Party to found his Hound Party in the centrist area, following the example of Macron in France. The goal, the ambition was to have more weight in driving government policies. However, former President Giuseppe Conte proved not to be permeable by Renzi's input. Renzi accused Conte government to be very unresponsive, both in terms of pandemic control and on the economic recovery plan. The reality is that Italy is the country that has most deaths to the COVID-19 pandemic and the biggest worsening of GDP in Europe. On the basis of these weaknesses, Renzi requested and obtained a revision of the recovery plan, but did not consider it sufficient in some way. Italy would need serious reforms, while Conte did not seem very able to implement them. And this relation, the relation between these two personalities, creates a sort of power struggle between Renzi's party, Italia Viva, and the rest of the majority. Renzi withdrew support for the government and opened the political crisis. Any attempt by Conte on seeking a more stable majority in the parliament by favoring, for example, the formation of a centrist parliamentary group called the Willings failed, and then the president of the republic, Sergio Mattarella, asked all parties to support Mario Draghi. This is the background.
0: Leah, you're not following Italian politics from the outside. You're right in the heart of it as a Member of Parliament. Can you give us a bit more information on the inside about what happened, why it was necessary to form a unity government, what the new balance of power is between parties now that it's not as clearly dominated by your party and by the Five Star Movement?
2: Hello, Mark, and thank you for inviting me. I'm a keen listener to the podcast Well, the situation is what Arturo described. And on top of it, I think that many countries, Italy included, are going through a systemic change that has consequences on the political landscape. The virus has changed many things and many more will change them. And probably a small majority with many difficulties inside was not the best suited to catch up with the task of recovery, with the task of vaccination, with the task of reuniting the country again. The Five Stars is going through a deep crisis and this has prevented the former majority to find a cohesive design for the future of the country. I think this is the underlying issue that uh, looms large. When we formed the government in 2019, in the summer of 2019, when Salvini decided to commit political suicide, we set ourselves the task to find a sense of direction and a sense of purpose, which we didn't. And now that we have to relaunch the country This was very much needed. I think that Mario Draghi is the best person, the best Italian for the worst crisis of the Republic. And today he strongly urged us to the obligation, to the duty of unity in order to relaunch the country. And I think this is a powerful way of presenting the political situation and the political mission that we should all have.
0: Great. Thank you, Leah. So Alessandro, you now need to tell us who is Mario Draghi? Why was he a logical choice to form this unity government? What do people who haven't delved deep into his life as you have need to know about him?
3: Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Well, he is a bit of an enigma of a sphinx, if you want. Also the fact that he stayed silent for almost two weeks since when he was appointed by the president until today he has already sent the Italian political system into tailspin, which is used to overload of communication of information of spin. I think one way to describe Draghi is that he is the ultimate civil servant in Italy. Draghi said today courteously to the lawmakers that voted for him that this government was not the result of the failure of politics, but actually it is, and that when politics fail, Italy calls in the technocrats. And Draghi is the ultimate technocrat, the ultimate civil servant, director general of the treasury that managed to bring Italy into the euro in the 90s, Goldman Sachs banker, governor of the bank of italy and finally savior of the euro in 2012 when he was at the head of the european central bank so he was always since he stepped down from the ecb in 2019 he was always there in the background people knew that there was this reserve this sort of nuclear weapon to solve italy's problems if they got stuck and italy got very stuck over the course of the past months and so they are hoping that someone who is politically keen, an expert, and a person who has an almost unique standing, especially for an Italian on the international stage, will be able to push Italy ahead to do three, four, five things that are deeply needed and politics haven't been able to achieve so that Italy can go on for another decade or two until the next crisis.
0: So he is head of a unity government, Arturo. Why don't you tell us a bit more about who's in his cabinet? We can see some familiar and some rather less familiar faces in it.
1: I think that in some way, Mario Draghi seems a game changer of the Italian politics. Among his first sentences in the speech to the parliament, there was a very important sentence for us at ECFR too, no? He said those who participate in this government, who support this government, share European values. The irreversibility of the euro and the destiny of an increasingly integrated Europe and national sovereign must leave room for shared sovereignty. And this is linked to your question, because next to Draghi sat Giancarlo Giorgetti, the number two of the league that wanted the league to join this government. And I think that is very, very symbolic. And it is true that there are some hold faces in this government, but the background is totally, is totally changed. The very interesting fact is that the government of Draghi is splitting some parties or redirecting others, as Leah said. A major part of the League, for example, the Salvini's party and Giorgetti's party, sees Draghi as the right person to revive the economy of Northern Italy in particular, thanks to the European funds, and to create new credibility after Salvini's version of the Sovereignist League. And probably is only an opportunistic choice, but I don't think it will be temporary. On the other side, if we look at the, at the five-star movement, I think he's very divided on, on Mario Draghi. Because a part of the party, the Di Maio and the more institutional part of the five-star movement, are trying to transform a populist movement into a sort of southern democratic Christian party. But a minority party is, is opposing and will probably leave the party, In practice, we are witnessing a sort of Mario Draghi effect on Italian politics, a sort of pro-European bandwagoning that is marginalizing the right, Meloni's party, Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, and the populists, and that it is transforming the political position of some parties, Lega and Five Star Movement. Do you
0: think, Lea... As someone who's sitting in the parliament, this is something which will last. Because, you know, I remember when previous technocratic governments have come in, there was great optimism, for example, about Mario Monti and his ability to reshape Italian politics after Berlusconi. But in the end, he became incredibly unpopular. He, in many ways, laid the foundations for the surge of of the Lega and of the five-star movement in its more anti-European and populist phase.
2: Well, in the recent history of Italy, we've had two major technocratic governments, which was Ciampi's government in the 90s, 1993-1994, and Mario Monti's government in 2011-2013. Both of them happened in a time of systemic change for our republic and deeply changed the landscape of Italy. After Ciampi's government, Berlusconi set his foot on the political scene And after Monti's government, the five stars were basically born and exploded. This doesn't, to an extent, suggest us that we have to approach the matter with a lot of care, because you can have populists coming out of technocratic governments. But I don't think that Mario Draghi's government is a technocratic government. It is composed half of politicians and half of technocratic people, Most of them do have a previous experience in governments as uh, civil servants in very high position or in local governments. And I think the program that is set today is very clear. Recovery plan, Italy in Europe to drive forward the integration process, reform of the tax system, the justice system, and the public administration. And these are clear objectives with the money to do them and with an idea to take Italy out of the dire situation we are in. In 2020, we lost 444,000 jobs. I want to recall our listeners and myself that in 2009, at the height of the financial crisis, Italy lost 390,000 jobs. So the crisis is deep. And we have to respond with something that really sees the issue. And this, I think, will help us all to decide where we stand and to decide that in Europe, Italy is stronger. Outside Europe, Italy doesn't exist. And this will benefit some of the political forces, especially the Lega, who's not yet made a European turn and realize that if they want to have consensus, if they want to lead the country, which is legitimate, I don't agree with it, but it's legitimate. They have to come to terms with the fact that Italy is a part of Europe and is an important part of Europe.
0: So... Alessandro, we just heard from Leah about how much Italians are suffering under the health crisis and the economic crisis that we're going through at the moment. These moments are often ones where people revolt against elites and blame elites for a lot of the problems that they've come in. How is Draghi going to manage to find unity and a voice which connects with ordinary people, given that, you know, in many ways, he's the kind of most elitist person you can imagine? His history has been working for Goldman Sachs, being an unelected head of the European Central Bank. He was the head of the Treasury. He does look on paper like the technocrats, technocrats.
3: Definitely, definitely. You cannot really define him as a man of the people. Neither does he try to be honest. He has maintained his dry and a very detached approach. Also, since he has been named prime minister, I think that he has two factors playing in his favor and avoiding repeating the Monti disaster, as Liad was saying before, that the previous technocratic prime minister. The first one is that in Italy, there is something like populism fatigue. We've had the five-star league to different populists, but two populist parties in government in 2018. Then we've had this sort of strange mashup of left-wing parties and populist parties trying to lead a neo-state interventionist government with the one that just recently has fallen, which has made more than decent job of clearing Italy through the pandemic and through the emergency, but that clearly was at a loss at finding ways to respond to the structural problems that have come out of the pandemic. And on the other hand, there is the fact that Draghi has a lot of money to spend and that his main task is to spend this money well. It's a far cry from what, for example, Monty had to do, who had to perform pensions, raise taxes, bring public finances in order through a sometimes really harsh program of austerity and welfare cuts. In this case, Draghi's main issue would be to spend, well, the more than 200 billion euros that are available to Italy because of the next generation EU funds, not to mention that rates are really low, so Italy can finance itself at really low cost in the market. But of course, whenever there is someone who comes in to respond to a failure of politics in Italy, there is this risk that really, really heightened expectations in the public can quickly turn into bitter bitter anger as it happened with Monty. The drug is very aware, I think, of this risk and this is also why he has broken and tried to secure the party's buy-in for his program by bringing them into his government. It's one of the main things that we will have to do will be to maintain them on their part, because if they start to snipe on the sidelines, this government will have a very, very hard time carrying through his reform program. And then again, Draghi is very good at building compromises around the table in conference rooms, but his main task will have to keep consensus in the public and in parliament, and that's not going to be easy for a former banker.
0: So why don't we pivot to what this means for Italy and Europe and for Europe in the world? Every time we have one of these big government changes, there's a big debate about whether Italy is going to come back as a shaper of the European project. And this time, that's potentially an even bigger question, given that Brexit has happened and there is a new a balance of power in the European Union and Merkel is also leaving the European stage. Arturo, how do you see this changing the dynamics on the European stage?
1: This is an important question. I think that this government will bring Italy back into a true European and Atlantic tradition. It will be curious to see how Draghi will manage these two policies. The new premier is not only recognized by other European leaders as one of the well-respected people internationally, but Draghi has also closer ties in the EU with many prominent members of the Biden administration. I think despite Trump's exit The list of misunderstanding between the two sides of the Atlantic is long. And certainly the most important will always concern the relationship with China, particularly for Italy. But for example, Macron and Merkel have doubt about Biden's idea of a coalition of democracies to contain the rise of Beijing. Draghi, I think that will not have the role of, of bridge between the two shores, also because no one needs intermediaries on this. However, I think there is a rare opportunity. A rare opportunity opens for Italy to count more than the specific weight of Italy in the international context and European context suggests, no? because you mentioned Mark Merkel is in her final months as cancello. Whoever succeeds her in Berlin will need time to establish a new relationship, credential, etc. Macron is about to enter the presidential campaign so I think Mario Draghi has his prestige, experience of global relationship, and he has a very clear vision of European interest and, and European-American alliance. So Draghi will also have the presidency of the G20 for the whole year. For the first time in a long time, the voice of an Italian can count on perhaps more than that of leaders from other more important countries, that it is a rare opportunity for Italy and the possible new equilibrium in the EU. And I think that Draghi tried to, not to break, but to give a new equilibrium at the Paris-Berlin axis.
2: What
0: do you think, Lia?
2: Well, I think that this is a unique opportunity for our country. We have an influential prime minister. We have the G20 presidency. We have a new American presidency. Everybody knows that Italy is needed, but Italy is not always up to the standing that is required to take part in those discussions. We've been Politically, between 2013 and 2018, but we haven't, for example, with the first Conte government, we have been kind of with the second Conte government. Now we have an influential person that is a prime minister, and we have a large majority. I hope that all the political forces in Italy realize that we can be influential in the discussion in the G20. In the discussion on the Stability Pact, how we go back to a new Stability Pact There isn't a better way to enter this discussion than having Mario Draghi to do this for our country. How we exploit all the windows of opportunity that a new U.S. administration offers to Europe and to some specific theatres that concern our country. And I think especially about the Mediterranean, but not only. Also the discussion on climate, discussion on technology and how to regulate big platforms and so on. I hope that the political forces understand that this is the big bet for the future of the country and that do support Mario Draghi to this extent. Another thing, Italy has been and always runs the risk to be a deeply divided country. And this weakens our standing on the international stage. The fact that we are in a national unity government, that Draghi in his speech in the Senate made very clear that we have to recover a spirit of national unity. He referred to the Republic, he referred to Cavour, who has been the political unifier of Italy, really suggests us all that we should reflect a lot on to what extent this unity and division weaken Italy and Italy standing on the international stage. I hope this will remain as a legacy of this period in government as well. Uh,
0: Alessandro, you were, I'm sure, listening to the speech in Parliament, which Leo was just talking about. What could we learn from that about the foreign policy of Draghi government?
3: Indeed, he gave quite some hints of what is going to be his foreign policy, especially on the issue of national versus European sovereignty. This is something that he had been reflecting on and talking about also in his last years as ECB president, as he made a series of sort of programmatic speeches trying to outline his legacy there. And the main idea that he has tried to bring into the Italian debate is that nation states, especially those that are relatively small and economically weak, like Italy, when they try to act alone in the international stage as it is today, they actually are. Experience a loss of sovereignty. So, his main thing, which is a clear concept, is that he says states giving up some part of sovereignty as part of the European Union, they actually get back the sovereignty because they can become effective in things that single states cannot act on anymore. And this is something that tries to break the dualism versus nationalists and pro Europeans that has dominated Italian politics. And uh, and we will see whether this is successful, especially when it comes to the League, which has so far tried to appeal to nationalists and to espouse a nationalist line so he had a very firm pro-EU stance. He has reaffirmed the Atlanticist, close to the U.S. line of Italy. And it's also interesting that he mentioned Russia and China, and both of them in connection to the violation of human rights that have happened there recently. He even cited concern for what is going on in Asia and around China. So this shows that probably he is aiming somehow to have Italy punched a little higher during his tenure as prime minister.
0: Great. We're coming to the end of our time now, Arturo. Maybe you can just tell our listeners, how much is it worth investing in getting to understand this government? Is it going to be there for a very long time? Or is this just a prelude to the next political crisis in Italy? How long do you expect this to last before there are new elections and a new crisis?
1: This is a million-dollar million question, Mark. It's impossible to try to understand the Italian politics. But I think that there are some conditions that permit us to think that this government will go to the end of the natural... Uh, which is when? I think that a couple of years. Okay,
0: great. Fantastic. So we'll have plenty of time to come back and talk about how they're getting on in the future. But thanks a lot. That was a fascinating discussion. we got one thing left to do in this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Leah, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
2: Well, I'm reading Pale Rider, The Splunge Flu in 1918 and How It Changed the World by Laura Spinney, which is a very interesting book written before the pandemic that might teach us a lot of what happened 100 years ago and we seem to have forgotten.
0: Great. What about you, Alessandro.
3: I am an avid reader of fiction, so I'm reading The Ladies of Grace Adieu by Susanna Clark, a story collection. Her recent Pyrenees is amazing, but for something more in keeping with today's programme, there is a profile of Draghi's pre ecb years on Le Grand Continent, a French online magazine, but the article is also available in languages including English. It's a very good article by an economist at OECD and an Italian scholar.
1: Great, and what about you Arturo? I would like to recommend uh, Alessandro's book because he didn't mention it. So the, the book came out with an exceptional timing. The title is Mario Draghi, the Architect, the True Story of the Man Who Saved the Euro. And Alessandro Woti with a colleague, Jana Arendo. I think at the moment there is only the Italian version, but we are waiting for the English version, Alessandro.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much to all of you. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure you let other people know about it by going to whatever platform you use to download this from and giving us a five-star rating and a positive review. It really helps us. So we would be very grateful to you if you can do that. We will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu. Podcasts, but for now, from Lia Quartapelle, Alessandro Speziale, Arturo Barveli, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Naomi Hunter.